I hereby declare on oath that I absolutely and entirely renounce and abjure all allegiance and fidelity to any foreign prince, potentate, state, or sovereignty of whom I have heretofore been a subject or citizen. You know, these words are from the oath of allegiance to the United States. If you were born in another country and you choose to become a naturalized citizen inside the United States, you will at one time have to appear before some kind of sovereignty and in the formal ceremony declare those words. Every country has something similar to this one. While the words vary, the idea is the same. In Canada, they say, I do swear that I will be faithful and bear true allegiance to Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth, the second Queen of Canada, her heirs and successors, so help me God. So while there is a process of becoming a naturalized citizen when you want to join another country, there is not one process that all countries use. And even if there was, there is no way that one country can force another country to drop the citizen once they have joined your country. So you can join the United States. If you were born in Canada, for instance, you can join the United States if you want. But the United States has no authority to force Canada to say you're no longer a citizen. Now, some countries say, uh, if you join another country, then you are automatically no longer a citizen in this country. For instance, India, Nepal, South Korea, Japan, they do that, or at least most of the time. But most countries in the world have what they call dual citizenship. They allow you to remain a citizen in your native country while formally joining another country, even taking these oaths of allegiance. It works quite nicely. Both countries have a claim on the citizen. Both of them come to expect something from the citizen, and most of the time, they're not at war. The trouble is that there are times in history when you begin to wonder where the loyalties of a person are. In 1941, December 7, if you were a Japanese-American living in the United States, you might have been a naturalized citizen, but everyone was wondering, where are your loyalties? What is your intent? To what sovereign will you ultimately surrender? What do you consider your vision of the good life? Is it the freedom of our country? Or is it the revolution of another? Are you with me? And in 2001, September 11, the same thing happened. Whether you were Islamic living in the United States or whether you were an Arab living in the United States, everyone immediately wonders the same thing. I know that you have the name of one country on your visa, but you have another one in your blood. And what we want to know is, where are your loyalties? To whom do you belong? To what authority will you ultimately surrender? And what is your vision of the good life? What are you willing to sacrifice? 
in order to give it. When I moved here, we hired, didn't, before I moved here, actually, a couple uh, pastors from Canada. And uh, I wanted to keep them, but the first year I was here, someone said to me, uh, they said, you, you, you may love them, but you won't be able to keep them because they're Canadians. And Canadians always go home. Ultimately, they have the motherland, they said. They hear the motherland, and they always respond. Now, Jay Guptill was here eight years, and, and, and I wanted to keep him. But then he heard the call <laughs> from his native land. And the same thing was true with Dave Mason. He was doing great in the youth department, and I wanted to keep him, but he heard the call. It was in his blood. He had to go home. So while I wanted to keep him, I knew it didn't have a chance because you can't compete with a person's native land. You can put them in a different country and you can give them all the stuff that they want and make it as nice for them as possible. But when they hear the call, they always want to go home. This is the story of Moses. Moses is a reluctant leader. What I mean is, he does not see himself as a leader, he does not even want to be a leader, and he is not called to be a leader by something inside of him. Moses becomes a leader at a historical moment in Israel's life. Listen closely. So Moses' call grows out of deep convictions that are already in place before the moment comes along. The moment simply presents a crucible. And because Moses has deep-rooted convictions that come from his motherland, his native land, he has to respond a certain way. He does not learn these convictions from anything around him in his naturalized land. He gets them from the motherland. And then when the moment is right, he is called to the foreground. If it were not for the moment, he is no leader at all. Let me tell you what I mean. You heard last week that when Moses was born, his mother placed him in a basket, put him in the Nile River, and waited for somebody to find him. She did. The person who found him was Pharaoh's daughter. Now, Moses' mother was a Levite, and his father was a Levite, who is really the ruling class of Israel. But Pharaoh's daughter, that's the king's daughter. She's part of the ruling class of Egypt. And so what it says in Exodus chapter 2 is, the girl went and got the baby's mother, that's the Levite, and Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this baby and nurse him for me and I will pay you. So the woman took the baby and nursed him. 
And when the child grew older, she took him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. And she, that is Pharaoh's daughter, is the one who named him Moses, saying, I drew him out of the water. So, so, so Moses is a dual citizen. He's two moms. He is one who birthed him and another one who raised him. One mother nursed him. Another mother gave him his name. So he was raised on the milk of one mom, but he was raised by the money of another mom. You see it? Part of the ruling class of Israel but raised by the ruling class of Egypt. He's a dual citizen. That works really well for a long time. You can live in Egypt, and you can belong to Israel, and nobody in Egypt will care. Freedom of religion. As long as you add your God to all the others, you'll get along fine. So Moses is educated by Egypt. He goes to school in Egypt. He is funded by Egypt. He builds his career in Egypt. All of his dreams are shaped by Egypt. But he's got the motherland in his blood. And there comes a time, there always does, when you got to choose. First time for Moses is when he goes out into the desert where the Hebrews are working as slaves. And um, when he gets out there, he notices that the Egyptians, those are his people, are oppressing and beating up on the Hebrew slaves. So from Exodus chapter 2, 11, it says, one day after Moses had grown up, he went out to, now pay attention to the language people, he went out to where his own people were, and he watched them in their hard labor. When I read that, I thought to myself, wait a second. His own people are the Egyptians. See, we keep reading Moses' future back into his adolescent years, but I got to remind you, when this happened, he hadn't spent his first day in Israel. Egypt was all he ever knew. But somehow, when the writer writes this story, he wants you to know that when Moses went out to look at the people that were slaves, it was the call of the motherland. And those were his people, not the ones where he came from. There will come a time when you will have to decide who are your people.
To whom do you belong? Where's home? Who has it right? Now, you can live in Egypt your whole life. And uh, uh, you can toggle back and forth from Egypt during the week to Israel on Sundays. That works really well. You can come and worship like a Hebrew and then go out to the business world and say, yeah, yeah, but out here, it's a different set of ethics. It's a different set of agenda. It's different out here. And so for a while, you will be able to hold those two separate. Or, if you can, you will blur them. You will say, well, there really is no difference between the Hebrews and the Egyptians. Because really, what are the Hebrews except religious Egyptians? Or something like that. You will blur the line of distinction between your people and the land where you are living. You will say there is no big difference between the native land and the one I'm living in right now. That's what I'm saying. You can do that for a while, but eventually there will come a moment when you have to decide. And that moment is not something that you choose. Moses is not saying, I'm in the mood for a fight. Let me find somebody to disagree with. Now, I realize that's what a lot of religious people do. We wake up in the morning and say, who do I distance myself from today? You won't need to do this. If you stay alive long enough in this country, there will come a time when you will have to decide who are your people. You will not choose the moment. It will choose you. And it's not a moment that happens every day, little bit, little bit. It's a big moment where you're at a fork in the road. It's a moment, as Solzhenitsyn says, that is like a knot in the timeline of history where the options become clear. The difference between the two ways is unambiguous. There is no middle way, there is no third way, and there is no time to waste. You simply have to decide, who are my people? Which way will I go? Where is the ultimate principle of my ethics? To whom... will I ultimately surrender? Some of you are there right now. Because you're in situations where one set of ethics or one set of rules is calling you to do something, but you have this nagging ache inside of your soul that says, I can't do that. Or you have this hunger inside of your soul that says, this is what I believe. 
I want to stand up for this so much. And then you'll go to work tomorrow or you'll be in some situation tomorrow and everyone around you is an Egyptian. And they have, listen to me, they have Egypt's definitions of power. And they have Egypt's definitions of success. And Egypt's definitions of authority and the good life. And everything inside you will just say, why can't I have both? That's where some of you are right now. Some of you are not there. You're thinking, I don't know what you're talking about. So take the rest of the day off. I'm not talking to you. But there will come a time. And when it comes, remember, we had this conversation. Are you with me? My mother used to call that talking Dutch. Some of you are all worried about the Supreme Court in the last couple of weeks. I know about this. I was up in Wisconsin talking to some ministers up there and the news just broke and, and it seemed to some that it was the apocalypse. You know, and I wanted to say, where do you think you live? Seriously? You were expecting something else? It was five to four, could have gone the other way, I get that, but eventually, eventually, and you all know this, anyone under 35 knows this, everyone under 65 is still trying to figure it out, this Christian nation or not? No. And we all know this. You're in Egypt, people. It's not bad. It's a wonderful place to be. You can thrive here. You can raise children here. You can have a really good life here. But there will come a time, there always does, where the options become clear and you will have to decide who are my people. Are you with me? The other time uh, is when God calls you. You will be in Egypt minding your own business and you will be working your job and uh, really doing quite well. And then all of a sudden on the backside of Horeb, that's a mountain, God will show up and put a fire in your belly about something. So he did this. He did this to Moses. God shows up in uh, Exodus chapter 3, and Moses is a shepherd. He's got a good life. He's on the backside of Horeb. He's working every day, and all of a sudden, God appears to him in a burning bush. And by the time God appears, he's already selected the guy he wants. He's not saying, Moses, I'm posting this job. Please apply. He's saying, Moses, I want you. And Moses does not feel like a leader. He doesn't see himself as a leader. But one more time, it is a moment in Israel's life when God needs a champion. And so he goes into Egypt and he finds one. 
He just confronts him. And here's the interesting thing. The moment God confronts Moses in Exodus chapter 3, Moses always speaks about the Hebrews as if they're not his people. He keeps talking, well, you keep asking me to go save these people of yours. <laughs> which is why God said, you just heard it read, which is why God said to him, these are your ancestors. Did you hear the words up here? Your ancestors, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, remember them, Moses? They're in your blood. These are not just my people. These are your people. And I'm calling you to lead them. Moses cannot use the first person. But watch what happens two chapters later in Exodus chapter 5. He goes in before Pharaoh, and this is what he says. The God of the Hebrews has met with who? Us. And now let us go and offer sacrifices to the Lord our God. <laughs> it is not. And, he, and the moment he does this to the king, the die is cast. He has declared his nationality. In the first instance, he declared his loyalty. He went out to the field. He saw the fight. He intervened, saved the Hebrew, and declared that his loyalties were to the Hebrews. And in the second instance, he declares his intent. He says, this will be the rest of my life. It will just be an outworking of this moment. And so he goes in, and when he sees the Pharaoh, and he calls them the Lord our God, Pharaoh knows you ain't from around here, are you? You don't belong here, do you? There will come a time, there always does, where God will reach into a domain, whether it is education or business or marketing, whether it is finance or whether it's inside the home, whether it's athletic, wherever it is, God will reach into a domain and He will put His finger on an individual's life. And if you are not a self-selected leader, I mean, if you find yourself as sort of reluctant and you're like, yeah, I don't really want to do that, I just want to stay in my domain, take heart. God is not looking for that. By the time he approaches you, you've already been had. And the moment you say yes, the rest of your life will be an outflow of that defining moment. What is needed in this moment is courage. Because the convictions are already in place. They're the convictions of the motherland. It's in our blood. But what we need is the guts to do the right thing in that moment. How do we get that? Faith. It's faith. It's faith. Faith, says the writer of Hebrews, 
is the capacity to stand in the middle and see the end. The way Hebrews says it is like this. By faith, he chooses to be mistreated with the people of God rather than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. Are you hearing it? By faith, he has the capacity to be in the middle of a situation and he knows instinctively this is not the end of this. This is only a short season. I'm better off if I suffer now for what will ultimately succeed than I am if I succeed now in something that will ultimately fail. Are you with me? So he has the ability to stand in the middle and see the end. Church, listen to me. You are in the middle. We are not at the end. In the middle is where all of the frustration is. In the middle is where all of the quote-unquote wrong people are making all of the quote-unquote wrong decisions. In the middle, right is on the scaffold, wrong is on the throne. And we need faith to stand now and believe things. Listen to this. Some of you are already hazing over in your eyes. We need the capacity to see things now that everybody will know a hundred years from now. I can't be more clear than that. All of the stuff that seems to us right now hard and inconsistent and it's not giving me the life that I want will seem a hundred years from now like common sense. And so we need the capacity to say, I'm in the middle. This is not the way this ends. I will stand for what will ultimately succeed. In the words of Revelation, there is coming a day when the kingdoms of this world shall become the kingdoms of our God. And he shall reign forever and ever. Period. Game over. Okay, that last part was mine. But that's what that means. Remember where it's going. And give your lives now to where you don't need to get angry. You don't need to get despairing. You don't need to be upset. You just need to say, you know what? We live in Egypt, but we go into the promised land. And nobody, nobody can keep that from happening. Thank God. Yeah. The other, uh, the other thing faith does is it helps us to see what is really valuable. Because you see, when you're in the middle and you're surrounded by the Egyptians, they have a different value to almost everything. So when they talk about what's important, they never talk about 
what's important to you. That's okay. Don't be upset. Just realize these are two countries. They have two different conversations going. You belong to this conversation. So by faith, we have the capacity now to see what is ultimately the most valuable thing. comes from Hebrews again. Hebrews chapter 11. It says that Moses chose to be mistreated with the people of God rather than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a short season. Now listen for it. He regarded the persecution with Christ, here's the language, to be of greater value than the treasures of Egypt. So he had two things in front of him. One of them was identify with Jesus, and the other one was enjoy Egypt. And he had the vision to say, this is the better. Um, some years ago, my wife and I used to watch a show called The Traveling Antique Roadshow. You've seen this. Where your junk may be worth treasure. So the first or second time we saw it, I went through the junk drawer. I figured there had to be something in there. Because I figured what made it a treasure was it felt like junk. Because I saw the program and everything they were hauling out was pure junk. But it was worth a ton of money. So I thought, well, I'm wrong about everything. So I went scouring through. I'd pull stuff out. I'd find an old razor. It was an old razor. If it was mine, you know this. And I'd say to my wife, well, how much do you think this is worth? And she'd say, pure junk. I would say, you don't know. She was right. What they don't say is that it is also a place where your treasure may be worth junk. Your junk may be worth treasure, but your treasure may be worth junk. One of my favorite episodes was when someone came in and said, I passed up $500 for this thing because I knew it was worth something. The expert looked at it and said, it's worth about 50 bucks. <laughs> We're all laughing except the guy. He's out 450 bucks right now because his treasure's junk. But the other guy's junk is treasure. Here's where I'm going. You don't know what something's worth. You just don't know until you ask an expert. Listen to me, church. If you are in the middle, surrounded by Egyptians, you are no expert. You cannot possibly know this. Now, I know you feel that you have an objective mind and that you're a reasonable person. But I tell you, you were raised on Pharaoh's money. You were raised in Pharaoh's lap. It's not bad. It's not your fault. You shouldn't hate it. You should just know where you are. And the only way that you know an expert's advice is to open the Word of God and read it. Oh, I wish I could convince you. 
while the Bible was written by real men at a real time in history. There is a sense in which the Bible was written at the end of history, portraying to us the only possible outcome and assigning to things their proper value. One Catholic writer has put it like this, truth or wisdom is the capacity to assign to things the value that they have in reality. Truth is the capacity to give to something the value that it has in reality. Not the value everyone else around you thinks, or even the value that you think, but the value it will have in reality someday. And when we open the Word and read it, and take it at face value, it becomes the Word of an expert. But you have to believe it by faith.